Let's pray together. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I pray that that would be true for me in the next few minutes, that there would be a communion between my heart and you, Father, through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would deliver me from self-consciousness or any kind of vanity. I pray that there would be a seriousness among us as we listen to what I think you've given me in the last few days for these students. And I pray that your name would be exalted and not mine or any ministry. I pray for liberty and a wonderful sense of engagement with the truth. And I ask, Lord, that you would take the huge, big, glorious things about yourself and bring them incarnation-like down into the details of our lives so that everything is changed for the glory of Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. So that's my theme. My topic is the majesty of Christ and the micro level of your life and my life. Everything you think, everything you do, everything you say, everything you feel, all the relationships that you have, have to do with God. When the Apostle Paul describes God, he describes him with all-encompassing words like, all things are from him and through him and to him, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So not some things, all things from him, all things through him, all things to him forever. And he does the same thing with regard to Jesus. Colossians 1.16. He says, through him all things were created. Invisible, invisible, on earth, in heaven, thrones, dominions, authorities, powers, rulers, all things were made by him and for him. So you have those two texts. Romans 11.36, Colossians 1.16. The Father, all things through him and for him. The Son, all things through him and for him. So I feel very justified in saying that everything in your life, everything you say, everything you think, everything you feel, everything you do, all the relationships you have, have to do with God. One of the great things about preaching in the same church for 27 years is that the mission of the church and the mission of the preacher tend to merge. At least that's the way it is at Bethlehem where I preach. And the mission goes like this. We exist, or I like to say I exist, 
to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. So when I say everything you say, everything you do, everything you think, everything you feel, all the relationships you have, have to do with God, I have something way more specific in mind than just have to do with. I believe that God has ordained your existence and everything you do and everything you say and everything you feel and everything you think and all the relationship you have have ordained those so that they will make God look good. You're on the planet in order to say things, do things, think things, feel things, be in relationships in such a way as to make Jesus Christ look like he really is, namely, supremely valuable. So that's the mission statement of my life. I would like it to be the mission statement of everybody's life. We have it as the mission statement of our church. And you should ask, do I devote my life, and I mean down to the details, do I devote the way I study, what I eat, what I drink, what I wear, how I do my hair, what movies I watch, what websites I go to and how long I stay there, what car I drive, where I live, how I do my work, where I work, what jokes I tell and like to hear, what kind of language I use, who my friends are, why, and how I spend all my leisure time. Are you asking, how do all those things do that? How do all those things spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. How do, how do I do all those things so that I make Christ look really great? So that I do them in a way that communicates He is more valuable to me than all those things, than anything else. My father and my mother, when I was your age, signed off week after week in all their letters to me in college and then three years in graduate school. So for about, no, it was six years in graduate school if you count seminary. So for 10 years of education, four, three, three, for all those years, my parents wrote me almost weekly and signed off more often than not, I think, with Love Daddy, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Or love mom, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Or see you soon, 1 Corinthians 10.31. And I don't know whether you have parents like that. As I was jotting that down yesterday, I thought there are a lot of uh, young people who, when they hear a story like that, say, that would have been nice, or that would be nice. And so if you don't, can I just play dad for a few minutes. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Now, this is plain. This is not hard to understand. And he mentions eating and drinking. Surely he mentions eating and drinking because they are among the most basic, common, ordinary things in life, so that when we say whatever, we wouldn't interpret it with some highfalutin, ethereal, mumbo-jumbo religious stuff that doesn't get down to where I live. Surely the reason he said, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, the reason he begins with eating and drinking is so that we would just spread that over all the details of our lives, which sets an amazing agenda for us. Everything to the glory of God. Astonishing verse that my parents drove into me for about 10 years when I went away from home. Now, why am I starting this talk here? Taking the, the majesty of Christ and saying it relates to the micro level of life by alluding to 1 Corinthians 10, 31, and calling out a mission statement that says, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, all things, not some things, all things. And here's the reason. I have a concern with what God, I think, is doing in your generation and how it could so easily be short-circuited. I really do believe God is doing a remarkable thing in the young adult generation in America. There are all kinds of movements. Some of these movements don't even know the others exist, and they consist of tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of young people. It is remarkable. You go from coast to coast and northwest to northeast to south, and you find these amazing outcroppings of young people who are passionate for the supremacy of God. They're passionate for doctrine. They're passionate for biblical truth. They're passionate for global concerns and world evangelization. And so I'm concerned when I see what could be Achilles' heels that could break the whole thing open and cause it to just dribble away into nothingness. And one of those things is the disconnect, the disconnect between the majesty of God and the movies you watch. Just to choose an example. There's an awakening to the majesty of God around the country. There's a filling of hearts with God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated songs. It is remarkable that in the contemporary worship awakening, if you leave all the fluff to the side, at the center, the majesty of the God who shines through is most remarkable. There's the, the giving of zeal for truth and biblical doctrine back and forth among young people, and I'm concerned that there are some loose wires dangling between the majesty of God that is sung about in the services that causes people to soar with a kind of emotional euphoria about the greatness of God 
and the wires of our daily practical detailed lives. They dangle disconnected between big thoughts about God and big appetites for beer. They dangle disconnected between infinite purity of God and the lure of pornography. They dangle disconnected between the majesty of Christ and the carelessly attended default weekend movie. No questions asked, it's just a thing to do. They dangle disconnected between white-hot, all-satisfying divine holiness and hip-huggers and plunging necklines. As long as these wires dangle disconnected, the supremacy of God in our songs and the passion for personal holiness in our daily lives are not going to be working the way they're supposed to, and the whole movement could come apart. A little girl came up to me last Saturday night. We do, you know, Saturday night services here, and I was just leaving the choir room. I don't know where she came from. I've never talked to this little girl. She's about 12, I would say. I don't know how old she was, 11, 12, 13. I can't tell, but flowering into young womanhood. And she comes up to me, and as I'm walking up to the sanctuary into worship, with one minute to go, she says, Pastor John, what's the balance between modesty and legalism? And she's, she's, this, she's this tall. What, what are you, I have 30 seconds to, to answer this question. What do you do? First of all, you don't do this. I, I didn't criticize the question. It is a bad question. Because the question is posed in terms of how do you balance legalism and modesty? Well, you don't. Like 50% legalism and 50% modesty would be a good balance? That, that's, that you, she didn't mean that, so I'm going to cut her some slack here. Bad question, good thought. What she meant, what's good about this question is, number one, she cares about modesty. She cares about the standards of Christ. And number two, she cares about the gospel and the sacrifice of Christ and doesn't want to mess up with the gospel in trying to be modest or mess up with modesty in trying to be free in the gospel. She's she trying to figure this out at age whatever she is there. And I appreciated that very, very much. She might not be able to articulate it, but I think what she was asking was, how do I magnify Christ in the way I dress while enjoying doing it from a heart that has a more firm basis of acceptance with God than dress codes? A very profound question coming from a, a little flowering email. So my aim in this message is to take your passion and to push it down into the dormitory room. This passion for God, where we tend to soar thinking and feeling about the majesty of God, take it down into the dormitory room and the street corner and the theater and the pizza hut and the weight room and the classroom and the lunchroom and the bedroom. I want, 
I want to help prevent the short-circuiting of what God is doing today as the uh, wires tend to dangle and bump into each other and sparks fly and the whole thing could short-circuit and people look back in 20 years and say, boy, something was just ready to happen there at the beginning of the millennium and hmm, never seemed to go anywhere. I would like to be a servant of that soldering. That's my goal while we are together here. I'd like to help you solder these wires that connect the majesty of God and the movies you watch, the beauty of God and the beer you drink or don't drink, the flawless character of God and the clothes you wear, the infinite worth of God and the way you spend your leisure, the sweetness of God and the sacrifices that you make for the poor, the wrath of God and the vigilance that you show over your own tendency towards racism and society's tendencies, the love of God and the labor you expend for the lost, and the mercy of God and the energy you give to missions. All those are in danger of short-circuiting as the wires from His Majesty and the wires of your practical life are not as well soldered as they should be. I just assume that's the case for hundreds of us, and I would like to be of help. I'm jealous for your generation that the great work God is doing not be merely flashing of uh, lightning in the sky. This is, this is the other image I had in my mind besides the wiring image. It seems to me that when big groups of, of uh, students get together with great music, with solid God-centered lyrics and a solid vision of God that the singing goes on and the lightning is flashing in the sky. I mean genuine spiritual sights of God are flashing and the bolts may never hit the ground. If you ever watched a, a thunderstorm, there are different kinds of thunderstorms. Some thunderstorms you watch and lights everywhere, but you don't ever see any, and the lights go out. And if, if the lightning that is flashing in our worship services at church never strikes the ground you walk on, you probably, within a half an hour after that service, will feel zero power in front of this internet or whatever. And I would so much be jealous not for that to happen. God is in the details, and it's a fearful thought. I apply it mainly to my church. It's a fearful thought, isn't it, to say that if the lightning bolts of corporate worship don't strike with shattering power in the details of your life, the whole storm may prove to be a laser show. It wasn't, wasn't really lightning after all. It was just man-made laser beams, and we thought it was lightning in worship. It felt like lightning in worship, but from the distance of an hour later, as I cave before this temptation, looked like a laser beam from here now. And I would just so much like to be an instrument in God's hands to say, Lord, let the lightning fall, not just 
go around up here. Let it come down and strike the ground where these students walk. So here's what I'd like to do. With that little girl's question in mind in front of me, and the disconnected wires hanging down in front of me, and the lightning bolts of worship flashing around me up here, I want to show you something from the book of Romans. I'm going to do it so overarchingly that it's hopeless that you'll look it up, so just uh, take notes if you want, or think it, but don't bother trying to follow me in your open Bible, because it's not going to work. I want to show you something in Romans about this connectedness between the, the majesty of God and the micro level of life that I think people tend to overlook. It's so important. So first, in Romans, it becomes very clear that the most fundamental indictment that God has with man is that we don't glorify Him as we ought. Here's the word. Romans 1.19, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks to Him. They did not glorify God or give thanks to Him. So we were made to glorify and thank God, and none of us has done that the way we should. None of us responds with the kind of delight in God or trust in God or admiration of God or passion for God that corresponds to the nature of His worth. We don't. None of us. In fact, Paul gets to chapter 3 and he says that's the very essence of sin and it's true of all of us. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Meaning the nature of sin is that we love other things more than the glory of God. Glory of sport, glory of entertainment, glory of music, glory of theater, glory of food, glory of sex, glory of whatever. We love other glories more. We're more moved, we're more excited, we're more devoted, and that's the nature of sin. And it's true of every single human. None is righteous, no, not one. Jew and Greek under sin, Paul said. All the mouths of all the earth are stopped, and we're all accountable before God. That's where Romans 1 through 3 ends up. And so the question then becomes for all humans who are thinking straight, how can, I, how can I be rescued? I'm under the wrath of God. I'm guilty. I have a heart that is more prone to want to be praised than to praise God. So what hope is there for me? And the answer, as you know, of Romans is Jesus is the answer not the law. That's the contrast Paul's setting up. Romans 8.3, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now that is an amazing verse. God sends His Son, the divine co-eternal Son, in human form into the world so that the divine God-man walks on the planet. And His design is that in this Son there might be a condemnation of sin. And the Son never sinned. So, whose sin is condemned in Romans 8.3? 
What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Jesus. Whose sin? Mine. And there's the answer. It's amazing. God sends his son in order to condemn me and my sin in the Son, so that if I would trust the Son and not the law, God would view me as united to the Son, so that the Son's death becomes my death, the Son's punishment becomes my punishment, the Son's condemnation becomes my condemnation, and like it says in Romans 5.19, the Son's obedience becomes my obedience. So that everything that was required of me that I couldn't give and the punishment required of me that I didn't want to give, Christ offered up the one and bore the other. And there's the gospel that we love so much. So the answer of Romans to the question of every human being's sin and guilt and condemnation and corrupted heart is Christ came into the world to bear our sin and live our righteousness. So we believe him and are united to him by faith and his death becomes our death, his life becomes our life and we have, as Paul says, peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. We hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So there's the great conclusion of chapters 1 through 8. And you would think that after Paul is finished setting us right with God, no condemnation, peace with God, through faith alone, not works of the law, and having related it to all of creation in chapter 8, 18 to 25, having related it to all of redemptive history in chapters 9 to 11, he'd be done. Right? He's done. We're saved. We're free. We're going home. He's finished. And, and he's got five more chapters. That's the obvious thing I want to make sure you don't miss. Why you need five more chapters? I'm saved. I'm justified. I'm secure. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised from the dead. I'm safe. End of book. Let's go watch a movie. Five more chapters. Why? What, what in the world is, is going on? So I said to this little girl, I had 30 seconds. I said to this little girl, now be sure that you know what real legalism is. Legalism is what you do when you believe that doing is the basis of God's saving you, being for you totally. 
That's legalism. Legalism is believing that doing, any kind of doing, is the foundation where I stand on to support me in the presence of God. That's legalism. Don't do, you don't want any of that. That goes. And she said, yeah, that's right. And that's all I had time to say. <laughs> no help in modesty at all. But I've got a little more time with you. And so there's more to say. There's lots more to say. You're not saved by keeping any dress codes. You're not saved by drinking codes or movie codes or social justice codes or racial reconciliation codes or Ten Commandment code. You're not saved by code. You're saved by Christ, His blood and His righteousness by faith. We stand there. And in that process of standing there, watching him die for us and rise for us, we fall in love with him and treasure him above all things. We starts to give a little, a little clue to what's going on in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 of Romans. There's a pivotal verse. You know it, don't you? Listen, he's just finished 11 chapters, right? 11 chapters he's done now. The greatest chapters in the Bible, probably. We are justified. We have peace with God. There's no condemnation. His righteousness is ours. His death is ours. We are absolutely secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your legs, hands, lips, and sexual organs as a living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that, that when you think, when you feel, when you intuit, you get the will of God right about everything. That's, that's the pivotal verse. Amazing. These are blood-bought bodies, living sacrifices. You're not your own. You were bought with a the price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Blood-bought hands and blood-bought legs and blood-bought tongue and blood-bought eyes and blood-bought ears and blood-bought sexual organs. They're all Christ's. He bought them. And justified people worship with them. They don't sell them. Justified people, the chapter 1 to 11 people, are changed people, renewed people, transformed people. They're on their way towards being new in Christ. I think chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 are the thunderbolt that strikes the ground. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. When that happens, it's a lightning bolt that hits the ground under your feet and everything changes. It's the soldering. It's the soldering that helps the disconnected wires of the majesty of God in the movies you watch and the food you eat get connected. So in the gospel, we were justified and forgiven and accepted and we saw all that happening by faith and Christ became precious to us. And when Christ becomes precious to you, to us as the supreme value of life, everything begins to change. That is the most fundamental transformation and it tends to change all the other parts of life. But here's the amazing thing. You would say, I would tend to think, given the way I understand freedom in Christ and the badness of legalism and the glory of justification and the uh, spiritual nature of sanctification, I would say, so you're done now. You're done now. Chapters 12, 1 and 2, that's it. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices and be transformed in the renewing of your mind and don't be conformed to the world and then you'll be able to prove what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. End of book. Let's go do it. He's still got five more chapters to go. And you start to ask, hmm, so evidently being justified and laying our lives on the altar of God with our bodies and having the Holy Spirit begin to transform and renew our minds and give us a discerning heart to detect the best way to do eating and drinking and entertainment or not still has another component to it missing. Namely, all the amazing specifics of chapters 12 and 13 and 14. When the Bible begins to get specific, it's not becoming legalistic. When the Bible begins to get specific, it's getting serious about the visible displays of the glory of God in your life. We're justified for the purpose of making Christ look great. That's why He saved us, to make Christ look great. If we continue to eat and drink and entertain ourselves exactly the way unbelievers do, how will it appear to them that Christ is most precious to us? So after Paul says that justified people conform not to the world but to the Spirit and the truth, he gets down and fleshes it out. Now just listen, I'm going to walk you through this real fast. Let it have just a general big impact as you hear what Paul does next. Because this is the part where the wires seem to not connect. The first thing he deals with in verse 3 is he tackles the whole issue of self-esteem and turns it right on its head and makes our value a function of the value of Christ to us. Then he talks about church and the nitty-gritty relationships of church we're not supposed to be freewheeling, unaccountable individuals. We belong to messy, real-world, imperfect churches, according to verses 4 through 8. Then he talks about hypocrisy and the genuineness of love in verse 9. Then he talks about objective good, 
objective good and objective evil. Cleave to the one, abhor the other. That's a huge word, abhor. So he's instructing us in our emotional relationship to objective reality outside ourselves. And then he tells us that there are all kinds of affections you're supposed to have for your believing friends. And he tells us, putting his finger on laziness in serving Jesus, we should have patience in tribulation and constancy in prayer. And then he gets in our pocketbooks, for goodness sakes, and he tells us we're supposed to give a certain way to our poor neighbors. And then he gets in our dining room and tells us we're supposed to be hospitable. I mean, how nitty-gritty can you get but to tell us how to use our houses to have people in so that Christ looks good. And then he tells us how to treat hostility. That's the longest section. How do you deal with people who are hostile to you? And then he tackles government and talks about how God ordains government, gets in our taxes again and our pocketbooks and tells us to pay taxes. Then he talks about adultery and murder and stealing and coveting and says that love fulfills all of the commandments against those. And then he tells us, don't be a part of orgies or drunkenness or sexual immorality or sensuality or quarreling or jealousy. That's the end of chapter 13. And we could go on into chapter 14 if we wanted to. The point is, God doesn't stop at Romans 12.2 with the big general principled statement of be transformed in the renewing of your mind that you may be able to discern what is the will of God. He goes ahead and gives example after example after example of concrete illustrations of the way we make Jesus look great in this world. Don't throw those parts of your Bible away. Something essential will be missing. Let me try to sum it up like this. The law is taken away as a place to stand for our justification. We die to the law, Paul said. When the law is taken away and Christ is put there in the place of the law to stand on in the presence of the living God for our foundation and acceptance. What is there for our moral compass? The law felt so complete and so practical and so helpful. And, and now Paul just says, you died to the law that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that you might bear fruit for God. So, does it just pop out like peaches or what, what, what do you mean? I mean, I, what is the actual nitty-gritty moral compass that we're left with when the, when the law is taken away? And the New Testament answer comes in four realities. Number one, when the law is taken away, you have Christ as your righteousness and your punishment and you see him in all of that as your treasure more valuable than food and drink and drugs and sex and friends and family and sports and entertainment you have Christ as your everlasting all-satisfying treasure and where that changes everything changes second you have the Holy Spirit 
And the Spirit's work, according to John 16, 14, is to make Christ shine beautifully in your heart's eyes so that you see Him for who He is and understand what He's done for what it really is so that the affections for Christ and the allegiance to Christ rise. So the Holy Spirit is essential in transforming our minds by revealing Christ to us. Third, you have the fruit of love that rises out of the transformed mind. The Holy Spirit reveals Christ, and where Christ is seen, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of Christ, and the love begins to naturally flow. And here's the key question about love. What is it? How does love function as one of the parts of the moral compass that gives you guidance for what to do in the nitty-gritty of your life? Most Americans don't know what love is. I'll state a definition that they might agree with, and then I'll give it a biblical translation. Maybe you would find people who would agree with the, with the uh, definition. Love is doing whatever you've got to do at whatever cost to yourself to make people as happy as they can be forever. I buy that definition of love. Doing whatever you have to do at whatever cost to yourself, cost Jesus his life to do this, to make people as happy as they can be forever. Now, the biblical translation of that is this. Love is doing whatever you have to do at whatever cost to yourself to help people have an all-satisfying passion for Jesus forever. That's, those are synonymous definitions because Christ is the only source of everlasting joy. If you reject Christ, you don't have joy forever. Therefore, the definition of love is eating, drinking, and doing whatever you do in order to help people cherish Christ above all things. Seeing Him and savoring Him above all things, and that becomes massively helpful in what movies you watch, what you eat, what you drink, where you go, how you spend your time. Are people seeing in you and your values Christ as supremely important? Are you doing things that will cause them to read off of your life? They don't seem to get the strokes that I get from this, this, and this. They seem to be drawing down their life and their joy from another place. That's what love is going to prompt you to show Christ as supremely valuable. And the fourth thing that we have as part of our moral compass, number one is Christ, number two is the Holy Spirit, number three is the fruit of love flowing from the renewed mind, and the fourth thing is practical, nitty-gritty commandments in Scripture like we have in Romans 12, 13, 
in 14 to illustrate the kinds of attitudes and behaviors that magnify Christ. So the Bible says real concrete things like flee fornication, practice hospitality, bless those who curse you, avoid orgies and drunkenness. Not as a new law for how to get justified, but because we tend to be blind to what will magnify Jesus. We don't know the kinds of behaviors that make Christ look good left to ourselves. We have to be told the kinds of things that the world needs to see, and that's why we need this fourth element, namely all the practical illustrations and guidelines in the Bible. In Christ Jesus, you are dead to the law. You're not left without a moral compass. You have Christ, you have the Spirit, you have love, and you have the practical commands of Scripture. And so I, I pray for you. I pray that the lightning bolts of corporate worship would strike the ground where you walk and everything would be changed. I pray that the Holy Spirit would solder together the wires between the supremacy of God over here and the standards of entertainment that you set for yourself over here and the standards of service that you set so that they would be firmly fixed and wouldn't short circuit. I pray that Christ would shine out of your lives with an echo of his excellence that shows he's supremely valuable to you. And I pray that whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, you would do everything to show that Jesus is great. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in my own life, I, I long very much that all the wires be soldered and the lightning bolts of my corporate worship experiences would strike the ground under my feet so that there wouldn't be any disconnect between the majesty of Christ in my worship moments in church and the effectiveness of that beautiful treasure in the way I treat Noel at home or raise Talitha or handle our money or think about the approval of men. So God, I pray that for myself and I pray it for all these friends. Lord, make the connection between the majesty of Christ and the macro, micro level of life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.